I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leading authors and public figures. Today, I'm interviewing David Eisenhower, longtime public policy fellow and director of the Institute for Public Service at the Annenberg School of Communication at University of Pennsylvania, a Pulitzer Prize finalist historian, and grandson of President Dwight Eisenhower and son-in-law of President Richard Nixon. We did a virtual interview as a program for a prominent women's club in Dallas on October 29. Enjoy. David, on behalf of the Craig class in Dallas, we're so honored for you to give an hour to uh, review uh, some of the highlights of your wonderful grandfather, Dwight Eisenhower, and also talk a little bit about your esteemed father-in-law, Richard Nixon. So uh, welcome to the Craig class. Uh, Talmadge, uh, Talmadge Boston, uh, thank you very much uh, for having me. And thanks to the Craig class uh, for sponsoring this program. It's an honor to be here and especially to speak with you uh, Talmadge Boston, I assume the audience is aware of this, is a uh, presidential historian. Uh, he is the best baseball writer I've ever read. Uh, he is a writer, uh, in addition to being a very uh, eminent attorney in uh, the Dallas area, and so it's an, it's an honor to be with you, Talmadge, and uh, we've become friends over the years. It's good to see you again. Same here. Well, David, the major part of our conversation today is going to be about your grandfather, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, Obviously, you knew him in two capacities. Uh, Number one, he was your grandfather. Mm -hmm. Uh, But number two, he was the subject of two marvelous books uh, that you wrote about him. Uh, The first one, Eisenhower at War, 1943 to 1945, that came out in 1986 and was a finalist for the Pulitzer. And then your second book, Going Home to Glory, which came out in 2010, Subtitle: A Memoir of Life with Dwight Eisenhower, 1961 to 1969, which you actually co-authored with your wonderful wife, uh, Julie, uh, that was a New York Times bestseller. So in in reading these books and other books about your grandfather, like most great men, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was complicated and multidimensional. And to you and many others, I think you said in Going Home to Glory, he was both beloved and uh, forbidding. Forbidding. <laughs> so so uh, for those who are watching this program who have not read Going Home to Glory, just so they can have an appreciation of both the quality and the quantity of time that you spent with your grandfather from your birth in 1948 until his death in 1969. Give, give a brief summary of, uh, of the experience you had with your grandfather. Well, uh, Talmadge, uh, uh, one of the things that uh, makes this relationship sort of unique uh, is that my grandfather uh, and my grandparents only had one son, one child. Uh, They lost a son in infancy. Uh, uh, Icky was his nickname, uh, Dwight Dowd. Uh, He died uh, at uh, age four or thereabouts. This was a devastating loss for the Eisenhower's. Uh, they, uh, my father came along not long after that. So he was uh, born in August of 1922. 
And you can imagine the response of the parents to the second son after losing the first son. They're very protective. So they drew my father in. Uh, and my, uh, my father had an independent career. Uh, he went to West Point on his own. He served in the Army on his own. But uh, at uh, many junctures in his life, uh, he was really part of this uh, uh, threesome. And as a result, uh, the grandchildren, that is myself, uh, my three sisters, including Susan, who's just published a book on uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, the, the four of us were, were, were drawn, on, drawn in almost like children. Uh, we, um, my first memory of the world, actually, and I just saw the plane. It's now in a museum, but I can remember being on board the Columbine, which was the NATO command plane of 1951, and my grandfather boarding that plane wearing a military uniform. That's my first memory of the world. Uh, flashing forward, I can remember the 52 election dimly. I remember 56 vividly. We were in the White House. By then, we had moved uh, close to uh, the White House. We were living in Alexandria. My uh, father had worked at the Pentagon and then went to work for his father in the White House, literally staff secretary. Uh, when we moved to Gettysburg with his retirement, uh, we moved into a house on the corner of the Eisner farm. So I was... Uh, uh, I would say I, I worked for him. Uh, I saw him daily. Uh, I roomed with him actually on a couple trips, uh, and my legal residence was his farm until 1979. This is 10 years after his death. I, I lived on with my grandmother uh, on that farm. So uh, Dwight Eisenhower is somebody that um, actually, I, I have a lifelong friend whose father, Freeman Gosden, was my grandfather's best friend. And uh, this fellow that is a lifelong friend is product of a second marriage. And we were thrown together as kids. Uh, so I, I probably stood in relation to my grandfather much in the way Craig did to his father. In other words, a, an older father. Uh, and so that's it, Talmadge. I mean, that I knew him very well. Uh, and I think that you've come up with the exact right uh, adjectives there. He was um, he was beloved, and I saw that. I saw that in so many contexts and in, in uh, uh, so many settings. And he was also a forbidding man. He was forbidding in a couple ways. First of all, it was his um, uh, it was his temperament. Uh, he was a military man, but a very efficient one. And so he was. Uh, he had very high standards, and I felt uh, that. The other thing that was forbidding was something that I learned to recognize very early, and that is this reserve that built up between Dwight Eisenhower and most people around him. And that reserve uh, was caused by uh, the experiences that he had had in his career. For instance, he rarely talked about World War II. Uh, I can count on one hand uh, the number of times I actually asked him a question about World War II. And what I grasped intuitively is that he did not want to discuss the subject lightly or casually with people. He did discuss it with my father because they went through it together. Uh, but uh, that's one reason, uh, Talmadge, uh, that I wrote a book on uh, Dwight Eisenhower in the European theater, Eisenhower at War, 1943 to 45. In a sense, what I was doing is I was filling in the gaps I was satisfying my own curiosity about something that I was aware of that was there, but that I was not genuinely part of. And so that uh, that fill, fills in the Dwight Eisenhower that I did not know. 
Well, as you mentioned, your father, uh, being essentially the only child, uh, he actually knew your father, uh, your grandfather, three ways. First is his son. Uh, second, your father was quite a military leader in his own right and mm-hmm. graduated from West Point on D-Day. On D-Day. Right. And then spent much of his career in the Army and ultimately uh, distinguished service in both World War II and the Korean War and became a brigadier general. Yes. And then in politics, as you said, serving as the uh, staff secretary in the White House to your dad. So give us your assessment of that father-son relationship between yeah. your dad and your granddad. Well, one of the things, Talmadge, I grew up uh, observing uh, is that uh, they were both strong personalities. And they had disagreements. I can remember one disagreement that they had over me, and that was uh, where I go to where I go to prep school. Uh, my grandfather is very set on a military academy for me, and my father is very set on Phillips Exeter, which is a civilian institution. I, I was aware of this uh, this argument, and uh, my father won all those arguments pertaining to me. By the way, I don't know how many won on other subjects, but I grew up thinking of them because I knew them in somewhat different capacities. Uh, my father's in the house and he's the rule maker, rules maker and the enforcer. My grandfather is sort of indulgent. Uh, he's somebody who's uh, actually a great teacher, uh, taught me how to uh, write, uh, how, how, how to ride horses, how to shoot, uh, how to uh, farm, how to uh, golf, how to do this and that. I was put through a regiment, but <clears throat> I knew them in different capacities. So I thought of them as sort of different people. And what I came to appreciate in part through doing this project is how tight they really were. Uh, uh, I realized at some point along the way when I was uh, involved in conversations and assembling this uh, story on the war, that in speaking with my father, I was uh, in a sense speaking with my grandfather, uh, that that I was hearing things that they had in common and that they experienced together. I, you said that uh, Dwight, uh, John graduated from West Point on June 6th, 1944. Waiting for him was an airplane, which had been dispatched by Army Chief of Staff George Marshall uh, in, in Newburgh, New York, I suppose, to fly my father, then 22 and a second lieutenant, uh, to southern England, where his father was headquartered, uh, to unite the two. Uh, my father spent uh, three weeks uh, in company with my grandfather during the uh, Battle of the Buildup uh, in Normandy. He kept an extraordinary chronicle of it. And uh, uh, so so they went through this uh, kind of together. By the way, I think uh, one of my favorite stories uh, from that is uh, <clears throat> one that my father tells, told. Uh, they were... Uh, of course, walking up and down lines, and you had uh, soldiers saluting and so forth, and uh, <clears throat> Dad's uh, in company with my granddad. He says, well, what's the protocol here? Who salutes first and so forth? He says, well, just remember this, John. There's not uh, there's not uh, an officer in this theater that does not outrank you and that I do not outrank. In other words, it's uh, – in other words, <laughs> we're – Beginning and end right there. So uh, the, fre- the most freshly minted officer in the United States Army and the, uh, the uh, senior man in that theater. But they, they had extraordinary uh, times together. And 
This carries on through 1944 and 45. And then uh, my father was, uh, in hindsight, I was born at West Point, New York. Uh, my father was uh, at the time uh, an instructor of English at West Point. And he was probably commuting to New York and seeing my grandfather at Columbia University all the time. Uh, again, my grandparents drew us in. And I'm grateful for that uh, in hindsight. It felt like we had a large family. Actually, it was a very small family. It was uh, uh, my, uh, my two grandparents and my parents and the four of us. Well, let's talk about uh, your grandmother, Mamie, who, from everything I've ever read, seemed to be a, a happy, contented soul, even though for several years during her marriage, while uh, your dad was serving the country abroad in Panama, Philippines, North Africa, and Europe. They had to live in separate places. So give us your assessment of the yin and the yang of your grandparents' marriage that lasted over 50 years. Yeah, over 50. In fact, I can remember their 50th anniversary wedding celebration, or anniversary celebration, uh, not far from here, maybe uh, three miles from where I'm sitting right now uh, in the Phoenixville area. And uh, my grandfather had an older brother who'd been divorced about four times. He said he was so moved by it that he thought maybe he would try it again, uh, <laughs> watching the ceremony. Uh, but um, I think that's a that's the way West Point marriages work, by the way. Uh, you said yin and yang. Uh, we're talking about partnerships or the way these two people uh, complement each other. Dwight Eisenhower was somebody that... Um, uh, was must have been an extraordinary young man. One thing that I've learned about uh, teaching the presidency at University of Pennsylvania, reading lots of biography and uh, being around presidents and hearing about them, is that they are extraordinary people at a very young age. Uh, they, In fact, they are conscious of their ambition at a very young age. Uh, I think that's uh, true of the genre. And so... I can imagine, my grandmother called him a hayseed, but I can imagine this young man from, from Abilene, Kansas, uh, with this um, extraordinary energy, uh, somewhat uh, undirected uh, ambition, but uh, terrific verve. The thing that I associate with my grandfather above all is energy. Uh, he was an extraordinarily energetic man, uh, uh, which uh, was part of his formidability. I mean, being around this uh, this. Uh, and my grandmother was, uh, I guess you would call a, a, a kind of an heiress in a way. She was, uh, she was a society girl uh, in Denver. She was raised in the same neighborhood that uh, featured the unsinkable Molly Brown on the Titanic. And uh, a neighborhood which is still standing in Denver. It's a beautiful, beautiful area, 750 Lafayette Avenue. And... I think that she was used to a, a kind of a life of leisure, uh, but she was also somebody that represented a lot of refinement uh, and um, the better things in life. The two of them met. Uh, they're really, uh, this was a typical West Point marriage. Uh, uh, a lot of West Pointers married Sarah Lawrence graduates and, um, uh, you know, places from the uh, Seven Sisters uh, in New England. Uh, uh, so... She has the graces. Uh, he's on a career track. I think they gradually blend uh, and they uh, gradually came to resemble uh, each other over a period of time. In my view, and I recount some of these in um, uh, Going Home to Glory, some of the most um, 
pleasant evenings that I can remember were after my parents moved to the Phoenixville area. They moved out of Gettysburg. I had uh, lots of high school friends in Gettysburg, so I, I slow walked that. I actually got summer jobs in Gettysburg, stayed around and lived with my grandparents. And I just remember these evenings uh, where we sat uh, on the sun porch and Mamie is playing uh, solitaire on one end of the sun porch. My grandfather is uh, fooling around with his remote control and watching television on the other. And I'm sort of in the middle. And uh, they were they were wonderful evenings. Uh, they had uh, a very wide experience together. Uh, they complemented each other. The, Mamie brought extraordinary uh I would say social skills uh, to, to that relationship as an army wife should. Uh, of course, she carries on into the White House. Uh, and she had uh, great self-possession and self-confidence. So she knew her mind and uh, she had uh, a very firm views about how things uh, ought to be, including the idea that a first lady should be rather demure, should not, uh, <clears throat> should not, uh, seek the spotlight, should not uh, uh, offer lots of opinions. The first lady, in her opinion, was uh, uh, somebody who was there to provide a setting uh, and to support uh, the husband, uh, the president. That was her philosophy of the uh, first lady's ship, which has changed, but it was uh, typical at the time. They were a great uh, pair, uh, Talmadge. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of my idea of... Um, uh, the kind of relationship that I think uh, all of us, if we're fortunate enough, uh, can grow into. Well, having laid that predicate, describing the relationship between your dad and Dwight Eisenhower and your grandmother and Dwight Eisenhower, uh, the predicate for this question, uh, your father, John, said to Gene Edward Smith, who wrote this wonderful biography, Eisenhower and War and Peace. Yes. He said, quote, good luck trying to figure out my father. <laughs> and then your grandmother, Mamie, once said of her husband, quote, I'm not sure anyone knew Dwight Eisenhower. So my question for you is, was finding the essence of Dwight Eisenhower as challenging for you to grasp as it was for your dad and your grandmother? Talmadge, I thought one of the things that I brought to Eisenhower at war is that I could hear him. I could hear him in his papers. And because I could hear him in his papers, I think that uh, one of the things I was able to do in that book was to provide the proper emphasis. Uh, I could tell when he was being firm. I could tell when he was uh, wavering. I could tell uh, when he was being harassed. I could tell this. I, I could hear him in his papers. And uh, I don't know if that's knowing Dwight Eisenhower. I think that there is a probably a dimension of most people who are in these positions uh, that I would I would say uh, it, it tends to be beyond reach of uh, of others. Uh, another very good example of that. Uh, two examples come to mind very rapidly. Uh, one is Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and his uh, his own children, as you know, uh, because you've uh, you've studied this, his uh, heavily forested interior. Yeah, heavily well well put. As my father put it, he was uh, called him a sort of a sphinx, in other words, sort of a mystery man. Uh, and I think he was mysterious even to his family. I think perhaps the most mysterious individual I've ever met and spent time around, and I spent a fair amount of time around him, was uh, uh, President Reagan. Uh, President Reagan was somebody who had this 
warmth. Uh, but he had these wells of uh, reserve and uh, and so forth that I think that uh, even his uh, his son remarked about it uh, and Nancy as well. I think that my uh, grandfather was. Uh, I'm not sure. I just think that he probably built defenses around some things that he probably did not want to dwell on. And I think that that uh, when people uh, grasped that, I think that they felt that there were certain aspects of his personality and experience that were beyond their reach. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that is uh, perhaps typical of certain presidents, but certainly that president and others. I, I can't imagine that, um, uh, that's not true of a lot. Uh, uh, even Bill Clinton. Uh, I can remember uh, being around Bill Clinton at the University of Pennsylvania. I was part of a part of a host committee uh, for him. And I have a very good friend at University of Pennsylvania, Walter McDougall. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner in 1986, uh, the year before my book was a finalist. And uh, he observed Clinton. I was in the line. He observed Clinton, and he walked away from it, and he said. Uh, uh, boy, he he has a very tough exterior. Uh, you know, as as warm as he is, he has a tough exterior. And I said to myself, "That's presidential." Mm. I think that's uh, that's what presidents have. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the great triumphs of your grandfather's life, and this has been uh, mentioned in almost every biography, was his uh, triumph of sorts over his famous temper. <laughs> and and in particular, your uh, great-grandmother, uh, Dwight Eisenhower's mother's famous conversation uh, that helped him gain control of his temper and how important <laughs> that was going to be to his success after he pounded his fist into a tree because she wouldn't yeah. let him go trick-or-treating on Halloween. Right. And I mean, uh, great leaders, George Washington uh, and many others, struggle with this just because yes. of the nature of their intensity. So from your perspective, knowing he was wound pretty tight, at least some of the time, if not most of the time, what are, this, what are some of the things that you know of that uh, your granddaddy did to try to uh, keep control of his temper? Well, I'm, uh, uh, actually, I think that uh, probably what he did to control his temper, Talmadge, are, are the things that uh, were not noticeable. Uh, what was noticeable is when the temper broke through. And I can I can think of two instances. In fact, they are uh, pretty close together uh, chronologically. Uh, the first was the summer of 1962. My sister and I, Ann, uh, uh, were on a, along with Craig Gosden, who I referred to earlier, my lifelong friend, uh, we were along on a trip through Europe with my grandparents. This was a 38-day uh, trip through Europe. They felt that we were old enough uh, to appreciate it then. It was an extraordinary uh, event. Uh, you can read about it in the New York Times, uh, if you can find the Times online and so forth. It was uh, covered. It was practically a state uh, visit. And in fact, he was on a diplomatic mission in part for President Kennedy. Uh, this was uh, during the Berlin uh, era uh, on the eve of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I was about to go off to prep school. And I had a bunch of friends at home that I thought that I was saying goodbye to forever. I want to get back to them. Uh, and so uh, we're staring at a five-day ocean voyage and uh, this and that. And I had an idea that uh, 
uh, I was ready to fly home. And I think that there were other people on that trip that also wanted to f- fly home. So I, I can remember we were in a bus in Dublin and we, we, we planned how we were going to do this. Uh, and that is, I was going to go in, <laughs> ask my granddad if it would be possible for everybody to sort of fly home. Well, I can remember getting word through a Secret Service agent about uh, about seven hours later that uh, I've got 30 minutes to make my flight. <laughs> I, I infuriated him uh, for some reason. I didn't appreciate the trip or something. Well, I realized what had happened, and so I made it up to him. Uh, uh, skipping forward, I worked for him on the farm. And my last year working for him, uh, just because I'm getting older, I'm in my teens now, uh, and I have other things to do in other places, but I, I spent uh, the final summer, 1963, working for him. And one day over lunch, I'm with a bunch of farmhands, and we're playing cards. And we, one o'clock, which is uh, the end of lunch hour, approaches, and we decide to play a couple more hands we thought that the general was downtown. We didn't know he was on the property. And he walked through the door. And there we were at uh, 120 playing cards. And he fired us on the spot. Fired us. <laughs> so I walk across the field home. Uh, I'm fired. Uh, and by the way, going through my mind is, uh, uh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. We're supposed to play golf at 4 o'clock this afternoon, just the two of us. And, and I don't know what's going to happen. So I decided to hold myself ready. So I'm waiting by the by the front door when four o'clock he he pulls up uh, and we drive to the course in silence and we played the first hole in silence and the second hole in silence, third hole in silence, fourth hole he says, uh, David, I allow my associates one mistake a year. You've had yours. And then uh, on the fifth hole, I was rehired. So I spent the summer happily uh, working on the farm. But what I remember was that encounter and I've never heard it uh, described better than by a man by the name of uh, Bryce Harlow, who worked for uh, General Marshall and was at war plans in the winter of 1941-1942. And he said that when, when Eisenhower erupted, and he did, he said the power of that temper was physical. So it was like a Bessemer furnace looking into the, you know, looking in just to see the coals uh, burning. He was, um, it, it, it would happen quick. Uh, but with tremendous power. And so there's no question in my mind about the power of that man's personality and his temper. What we noticed less, of course, uh, was uh, what it took (laughs) uh, for him to master that. But I think that that's, um, uh, we may have discussed this, actually. You and I have seen each other uh, within the past year. I think one of the things that I may have related to you that would be of interest to the audience uh, is uh, a conversation that we had at University of Pennsylvania with Hugh Seide. Hugh Seide uh, wrote on the presidency for Time Life for 35 or 40 years. Uh, He's somebody that uh, uh, I actually was acquainted with uh, for for a long time. In fact, he listed uh, my Eisenhower at War as one of his uh, top three books. Uh, uh, in a, I'll never forget that. It was a great compliment. But at any rate, Hugh uh, uh, he was sitting in a group of professors, and he was asked, uh, "Is there a consistent trait uh, that he saw in presidents?" And he thought about it for a second, and he came back and said, "Yes, energy." 
and by energy, we're talking about um, we're talking about something chemical here. Uh, we're talking about uh, a, a tremendous drive, uh, and I think that that's something that has to be channeled. Uh, but that's a definitely a that's characteristic. He must have been an amazing military officer. Is all all I can say. He worked for Douglas MacArthur for ten years, and I can just imagine looking back on that, reading the Eisenhower diaries in the period, and how throttled he must have felt. Uh, here he is stuck in uh, major, and he's uh, working a staff job. And eventually, MacArthur let him go. Uh, and uh, why did he let him go? Uh, probably for reasons that uh, people around him thought he was so remarkable. As World War II approached, MacArthur began to organize a staff for the war. And what he recognized, I think, in Eisenhower was that this was a command personality. This is not a staff personality, a command personality. So my grandfather is cut loose from the MacArthur staff, and he takes it personally. He thinks he's been fired. MacArthur submits a fitness report for Eisenhower as he is separating him and describes him as the finest officer in the United States Army. Uh, the moment hostilities break out, he must be moved to general list immediately. Uh, which is uh, more or less what happened. In other words, there's just uh, something burned uh, uh, in, in the man. And, you know, I spent a fair amount of time around his brothers. There were six Eisenhower brothers. And uh, uh, four of them I knew fairly well. I was around Earl a lot, and I was around Edgar. I was around uh, Milton. And uh, this is an amazing uh, group of boys. I don't know where they got their... Uh, their drive, but they had tremendous drive. They were very, very successful, uh, sort of uh, early 20th century group, no question. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Now, we learn a lot about people's inner workings by the games that they play and how they play them. <laughs> and your grandfather was fanatical about two games, bridge and golf. Now, Evan Thomas wrote a wonderful book, Ike's Bluff, President Eisenhower's Secret Battle to Save the World. And he's, he describes uh, the game of bridge and, and how Eisenhower played. He said, uh, your grandfather liked bridge because he liked reading minds, weighing options, thinking ahead, and concealing intentions. Right. And he was hyper-competitive about the game of bridge such that both your father and your grandmother mm. got to where they didn't want to play with him anymore. All right. So what was it like to play bridge with white eyes? Well, that reminds me, Thomas, you're talking about the temper. That reminds me of a third incident, uh, which was uh, nearby. This is about two years later. I was uh, uh, allowed to be his partner briefly uh, in a bridge game. This was in Palm Desert at night, uh, California. I missed a takeout double. <laughs> missed a takeout double. <laughs> I remember, remember the reaction to that. Uh, Freeman Gosden uh, told me this story years later that uh, somebody walked away from uh, the Eisenhower Bridge table. Uh, and uh, he says to Freeman, he scares me. And Freeman says, he scares everybody. <laughs> so, but uh, what I remember as a kid, uh, in fact, in the White House, uh, when uh, we would go into the White House several days a week from Alexandria for swimming lessons and things like that. And uh, usually I was summoned to the 
second floor for either to see my grandparents uh, during cocktail hour or something was going on. One thing that I do remember uh, going on pretty steadily were bridge games in what is today the treaty room is then called the Monroe Room uh, on the second floor of the White House, uh, right next to the Lincoln bedroom. Uh, and they had a bridge table set up. Uh, my grandfather's partner was a man by the name of Alfred Grunther. Uh, Grunther was president of the Red Cross at the time. He was his Eisenhower's successor as commander of NATO. Uh, this was a steely general, if there ever was one. And he had played with Gorin. He, he, he had been a partner of Gorin's in the 1930s in New York, apparently. So he was a master. Uh, and my grandfather... Uh, yes, he was very intent on the game. Uh, in the few lessons that I got from him, you know, with open hands and things like that, I think I learned some of life's, life's lessons uh, listening to him. You know, he'd ask questions like, uh, uh, do you have to play it yet? Uh, you know, it, it was a, sort of a living lesson on uh, why waste effort or why do something before you before you need to. Uh, why pounce before you're ready? Uh, th that type of thing. I can I can remember that well. But he was a uh, he was a very devoted bridge player, and I assumed that he was good. Though one of the interesting things that uh, I heard about him over the years, and I smile when I hear this, uh, people would say, you know, the amazing thing about General Eisenhower is that he's never gotten good cards. <laughs> and, so you can imagine uh, you know, everybody's making excuses maybe for uh, uh, some losses. I'm, I, I don't know, but he was very intent on it. Golf, same thing, same intensity. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I think this was somebody who's good at everything uh, he took on. And he had uh, an extraordinary range of interests. Uh, I, I worked for him on the farm. The thing that the uh, principle that I picked up working for him on the farm was this man knew my job. Uh, he could have done my job. He's asking me to do something that he he would be able to do. And I took that as a kind of another life's lesson that uh, leaders at, don't ask others to do that, which they're unwilling or unable to do themselves. Uh, and so he was a, he was somebody that saw a problem. My father paints a picture of him. Uh, we're in seventh grade. And what's Ike doing at night? He's learning the new math because he wants to keep up with... <laughs> Keep up what with his grandchildren are learning. Yeah, it'd be like me sitting down and trying to figure out, uh, uh, you know, computers. Uh, I, you know, I know enough about computers to get along. I'm not in the same league as my children. But I'm afraid that they've gotten way ahead of me on that one. <clears throat> now, uh, Gene Edward Smith titled his biography of your grandfather, Eisenhower in War and Peace. And Evan Thomas's biography, Ike's Bluff, ended with, quote, he was a man who understood the nature of war better than anyone else and who had the patience, wisdom, cunning, and guile to keep the peace. Lincoln, who is your grandfather's hero, went to war to save the Union. But Eisenhower, in the nuclear age, avoided war to save the world. So as a historian, David, which is more impressive to you? Dwight Eisenhower, the war leader or the peacekeeper? I think they're interwoven. Uh, I think in Dwight Eisenhower's mind, uh, what was achieved in World War II was lost. Uh, 
in a variety of ways. Of course, war was one way of losing it. <clears throat> Another way was for uh, Americans and the Western world to lose sight of what had been at stake in World War II, why it was waged uh, in the way it was, <clears throat> and why the outcome <clears throat> of World War II was necessary. Uh, that all has a bearing on uh, the Cold War. Uh, one of the things that uh, was difficult for people to accept at the end of World War II was the incomplete victory of the Western democracies. The Soviet Union wound up in uh, control of a security belt in Eastern Europe. Uh, we all know the Cold War ensues from it. But there's a long story there, and that story emphasizes uh, so much of what America achieved, the distance that we traveled uh, to validate America in the way we did in World War II. And I think, therefore, the correctness of our steps getting involved in World War II the way we waged it uh, and the commitments that we incurred in the process were all part of it. And so I think that he saw himself as a general who, because of Roosevelt's death and other happenstances, found himself with the responsibility, in effect, of Chapter 2. One of the interesting things about his uh, war memoir, uh, Crusade in Europe, is that uh, the last three chapters of that book are, are, are beyond VE date. It does not end with uh, uh, General Jodl uh, signing the instrument of surrender and uh, uh, the telegram went out to General Marshall saying the mission of this force was fulfilled at 0241 uh, AM 7 May 1945. Uh, it continues on with uh, lessons, with conversations with other generals, with the aftermath, in recognition, I think, that uh, the war was going to uh, engage America for a long time if we were going to do it right. The war, Winning the war was part of it. Uh, winning the peace uh, or uh, securing the peace was uh, the second part of it, which was more impressive. You put me on the spot here, Talmadge. Uh, one, one of the things that he says in his diary shortly after he takes uh, office, he's president. He says, uh, it doesn't feel very strange here. You know, Mamie and I were reflecting, I've been doing this since 1941. <laughs> uh, in other words, the continuity. But I would say, if I had to choose, I think the figure of Dwight Eisenhower in the winter and spring of 1944, uh, and this is stated about him when he died, is one of the greatest figures in history. And this is the um, uh, this is the uh, spoke of the wheel that uh, brings all of these contending forces together and focuses the allies on their overriding job, which was formidable, uh, and that was running the risk of a cross-channel invasion. Pulling that off uh, has to be, without that, there's nothing else. In fact, that's what my father said shortly before he passed away. Uh, my, my dad said to me, he says, well, you know, I'll never forget this. Uh, the only thing that really matters is that D-Day worked. <laughs> that's the only thing that matters to us. I don't think we would have existed, in fact, if uh, D-Day hadn't worked. Uh, I think dad would have been around, but I'm not sure I would have. Uh, we would have certainly had different lives. Well, advancing now to your grandfather's presidency, one of the most amazing things about it is that when he left the White House in January of 1961, uh, what he accomplished over the next eight years at the time when he finished was largely not appreciated. 
such that as of the early 1960s, right after John F. Kennedy succeeded your grandfather, there was a historical a historian ranking poll. He was the 33rd president, and they ranked him not even in the top half. Right. That was in the early 60s. Well, the most recent C-SPAN poll in 2017, where to have a vote, you've got to be a, a recognized historian out of the 44 presidents, they rank him number five behind yeah. Lincoln, George Washington, FDR, and Teddy Roosevelt. So why do you think it took so long for historians to recognize that Ike's leading the country through eight years of peace and prosperity was truly a landmark achievement? Well, I think that one of the, uh, that, that's a, it is a kind of a mystery, but I think that what historians have done is they have demonstrated that there was a, a rhyme and reason uh, to what Eisenhower was doing in the 1950s. I think that uh, in the 1950s, uh, now Eisenhower was a disappointment to a lot of natural allies initially. Uh, he had served Franklin Roosevelt. So uh, a lot of Democrats uh, really felt that he was one of them or that he belonged to them. Uh, he disappointed them by running as a Republican. Uh, the temper of the era uh, was... Uh, Frisky. I don't have another word for it. Uh, I, I I can uh, still see a, an issue of Time magazine that came out in the summer of 1955, describing the United States as frisky as a colt. Uh, just the enormous uh, post-war energies that were released by uh, victory in Europe and the sustained prosperity and uh, uh, what America is doing around the uh, world. We were uh, uh, we had this tremendous energy and. Uh, we were accustomed to crisis, and what Eisenhower is doing here is he's really sort of guiding the country towards uh, towards normalcy. Uh, he's, he's applying the brakes here a little bit because he but because he believes that uh, we can get carried away, we can burn ourselves out, we can uh, we can imbalance uh, our nation in very very key ways, and so he's he's imposing, uh, I would say, uh, a kind of normalcy. Uh, on a on a on a situation which was wise, uh, but I think at the time it was seen as um, he was seen as kind of an accident by Democrats, and he was seen as somebody who's applying the brakes uh, to a lot of uh, possibilities in America. Actually, what he's doing is he's uh, as McDougal puts it, he's building up social capital that we lived on for uh, another twenty years in the nineteen fifties. It was a very, very successful decade and very eventful. And that's another thing that historians are reminded of. Now, I knew that as a kid. I can still remember vividly uh, 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock at night, my father returning from the White House. Uh, we lived in nearby Alexandria, and I can remember the, uh, uh, the low voices in the next room uh, and the uh, anxiety. I can remember the early departures in the morning. This is during Berlin uh, when we are toe-to-toe -to -toe with Khrushchev uh, issuing uh, Oldamata. Uh, over the future of that city. These were very stressful times uh, and historic times. And I think that historians have brought that to life. I think that that was actually something that people took for granted at the time. You look at American history, uh, 
there is a new book uh, coming out. In fact, I, I wrote a forward for it, uh, which uh, is a collection of AP dispatches. That is how the war was reported in real time, uh, the major stories. The history that the United States and other countries wrote between, say, 19, let's say, 36 through 45 or 41 through 1945, or you look 41 through 50. I mean, the qualitative changes in that period. Uh, are astounding. So Americans were accustomed uh, to a very rapid pace uh, in history. The question was whether it's sustainable. And Eisenhower believed, um, uh, first of all, the commitments uh, had to be consolidated, but he, but he's also wanted to put the United States on a sustainable basis. And so I think that that, that, that meant that he was, uh, a good example would be the space program. Uh, uh, Eisenhower was anxious that the space program uh, be designed in such a way that we would uh, uh, actually gain practical benefit from the space program and that it would have long legs. We're now talking about going to Mars. Uh, we've been exploring the universe. Uh, we've been doing uh, achieving many of the purposes that I think uh, na uh, the uh, uh, NASA was originally set up uh, to do and so forth. This is sustainable purposes. So, Thomas, that's, what, that, that's my answer. I, uh, another thing is, historians uh, are exposed to the warmth of his smile is another thing. I think when you get into the Eisenhower records, uh, you, you find a very impressive man in a very impressive period. There's no escaping that. Now, in national politics during the 21st century, <clears throat> with each passing year, our country has become more polarized such that we are now truly a house divided and compromise has become a dirty word to many people. Now, your sister Susan has written this wonderful new book, How Ike Led, The Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions, where she says your grandfather was, quote, the most bipartisan president in modern American history, whose focus was always to achieve unity of purpose, and he did this by always favoring the middle way. Now, if Dwight Eisenhower miraculously reappeared in 2020 and decided to enter national politics with his unique ability to build consensus that made him the fifth greatest president in American history, do you think he'd have the horsepower to break down the walls of today's polarization? Well, tell us my opinion. Uh, I think that it is a process that begins with uh, one step that I think uh, we have gotten away from. And that is, I don't think Americans uh, in recent years have had a genuine sense uh, that um, we can't indulge these quarrels, that we actually have problems that we have to address. Uh, looking back on the end of the Cold War, when uh, suddenly America emerges and there is no uh, countervailing power in the world, uh, we've uh, reached a sort of age of Aquarius. This is uh, like the uh, third and triumphant, uh, the conclusion of Star Wars, uh, where everybody is uh, in a picnic and celebrating and so forth. I think that um, uh, we entered a period where we felt that uh, practically the entire world was self-correcting. And I think that what's happened over the last 10 or 15 years, 20 years, is that 
Americans have an intuition that we're addressing real problems now. We can't agree which problems to address, but uh, a lot of them have appeared. And I would say step one in unity would be recognition or building recognition. And perhaps uh, Dwight Eisenhower could achieve this today. Building recognition of problems and uh, priorities that we should assign to these problems. Uh, that would be uh, that'd be step one. Step two is a, uh, that's right, it's a question of temperament. And I think in part that's background. Uh, one, one thing that uniquely positioned Eisenhower was that he had served with most of the Democrats who were his opponents as, uh, in, as uh, an, an ally in administration. He knew, probably had more Democratic friends coming into the White House in 1953 than he had Republican friends. That was another part. Another part, which is um, uh, something that I think pertains to our election today, is we've had 30 years of close elections, close elections. We actually had a constellation in the early 50s in which we had a very dominant party, the Democratic Party. If you're a Republican and wanted to get anything done, you had to get along with Democrats. Uh, so you have these bipartisan moments, uh, be, but we have a dominant party. We don't have a dominant party today. We've had for, for 30 years, we've had two very evenly balanced parties. We've had very close elections. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush in 88 is the last 400-plus uh, electoral uh, verdict that we've had. That uh, qualifies a landslide. Uh, Obama was decisive in 08, but with that exception, is decisive. It's not a landslide. Uh, Clinton was decisive in 96, but uh, not a landslide in the sense he didn't reach 400 electoral votes. He didn't reach 50 in the, in the popular vote. Uh, we have not had a decision uh, by the American people that uh, we want to move in this direction. Uh, we see this problem and we want to move in this direction. We've not had that that decision on the part of the electorate. And so leadership, in the absence of either forcing that decision uh, or understanding what's out there or just going along for the ride, it really finds itself uh, with the task of surviving. And the way to survive this is just uh, satisfy the people who are on your side and hope you, you turn three more people out uh, in, the, uh, in the next election than they do. Having said all of that, I endorse Susan's uh, conclusion here that Eisenhower had the mind of a great jurist. He could have been a chief justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, one of his uh, uh, a great insight, it seems to me, into his mental process would be you referred to 1961, his farewell address, uh, where there's this discourse on balance uh, and statesmanship and the task of statesmanship. And it reads like a um, reads like uh, famous dicta. Uh, in a Supreme Court decision, he, he, had, the, he had the temperament where he's uh, seeking a just outcome. Uh, a, uh, and I think politicians are oriented, oriented towards favorable outcomes, not necessarily just outcomes. So I, you know, I agree with her. Uh, I'm glad she did the book. Um, I also uh, say that um, before we beat ourselves up too much here, I think that uh, we should recognize that in a sense, our controversies today are a product of our success. And I think that when we are in a situation where we realize we must 
come together to solve certain problems that we are challenged in a very basic way. When we come around to that realization, I don't think there's anything this country can't do. Uh, and I think that we will, uh, uh, certainly I'm not going to give up on uh, a, a unified America until we reach that moment. And But uh, you're right, uh, Talmadge, uh, House Divided is very worse. Well, I want to spend the last few minutes talking a little bit about uh, your father-in-law, but I want to start, obviously, your father-in-law, Richard Nixon, was vice president for your grandfather during eight years. And uh, give us uh, kind of a, a comprehensive overview from, from 1952 until your grandfather's death in, in 69, whether that relationship evolved, whether it kind of stayed challenging, kind of your assessment of, of the evolution of that relationship. Well, here's something that occurred to me when I was uh, drafting Eisenhower at War. Uh, and that is uh, a parallel that did not occur to me before. I'm going to back up for a second, Talmadge. One of the most interesting things that uh, I have ever seen, one of the most interesting afternoons in my life, was going out with a member of the Nixon Foundation to the Nixon birthplace, which was threatened by demolition. It was going to be condemned. It was going to be torn down. A foundation was forming to rescue that site and to develop it into what is today the Richard Nixon Library. And we walked through this thing, and I think in my mind, I, I, I didn't know two, two people that I would have considered uh, more different uh, than, than those two. A little bit like my father and my grandfather. I saw them as different people. Uh, Nixon and I, I thought of as very different people. And then I walk in. And I see the same A-frame house. I see the same upstairs uh, bunk room. I see the same five brothers on, uh, you know, on a picture on the wall. I see the same sort of hardened, disappointed father. I see the same saintly mother. I see same, 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 same. This is this place is so much like the Eisenhower birthplace. It was eerie. I got a call from Bonnie Angelos writing a book on first families years uh, years later, and she says, "You know, I was dumbfounded when I walked in the Nixon birthplace. The similarities." Eisner, did that strike you? And I said, "Yes." And she says, uh, uh, "Have you noticed patterns? Uh, this is across presidents and so forth." And I said, uh, "I certainly have. I mean, it, it hit me so hard that suddenly I began to see the similarities uh, in the two of them." Now, here's one similarity that occurred to me when I was doing Eisner at work. MacArthur, my grandfather's heroes in life, really, uh, he had official heroes. Lincoln was an official hero. Uh, Washington was a, an official hero. But his real heroes, uh, the people he patterned himself after or in one way or another wanted to emulate, were two seniors who he wound up ranking. One was George Patton, uh, who he had worked with at uh, Fort Meade in the early 1920s. They became great friends. Dwight Eisenhower winds up commanding Patton in World War II, which was awkward. And the other was the man he worked for, Douglas MacArthur. Uh, he hero-worshipped Douglas MacArthur. He wanted to be the best staff officer Douglas MacArthur ever had. Everything was about pleasing the boss. And he was crestfallen, disappointed, as I say, when MacArthur in 1938 decided to cut him loose uh, from his staff to basically cast him out uh, into the Army system. Eisenhower had a reputation, so he was going to be picked up somewhere. But MacArthur knew something about Eisenhower, I think, uh, that Eisenhower did not fully appreciate about himself. And that is 
he had a command temperament, not a staff temperament, uh, and that he was really destined for bigger things. And so you look back on pictures of MacArthur and Eisenhower, and you really see two, you see the two theater commanders working together on what, uh, social invitations, or I don't know what they're, uh, they're writing letters to uh, President Kizan of Philippines or doing some uh, office work. They're, they're working at something rather minor, but, the, but these are huge personalities. One does not fully appreciate it. It's the junior. I look at Nixon sitting around <clears throat> pictures in the Eisenhower cabinet in the 1950s. You get this baby. Uh, <clears throat> Nixon is 39 years old. Eisenhower, the rest of the cabinet is 60, 60 to 70. And all Nixon wants to be is somebody who measures up to the expectations of the boss. And the boss is treating him in a sort of strange way because the boss sees something there that maybe Nixon doesn't even fully appreciate about himself. And that is that this man is uh, capable of being president and president in his own right. And I think that that caused a certain wariness, which is the same wariness that uh, MacArthur had for Eisenhower in the 1930s. And I think it was the source of some <clears throat> misunderstandings uh, between the, the two of them. One of my, again, uh, one of my last conversations with my father, he passed away in 2013, was, um, <clears throat> in fact, this, this might have been a, <laughs> something that must have occurred to Dwight Eisenhower at one point. He said, you know, I was thinking the other day, and that is, um, you know, I wondered why Richard Nixon got into politics. I mean, you know, given his natural shyness and uh, this and that, he was uh, somebody who was uh, did not seem to be a natural uh, public figure. And my dad is on the phone, and he pauses, and he thinks about it for a minute. I guess it's because he's just so damn smart. And uh, <laughs> so you can imagine Dwight Eisner saying, why is this guy uh, in oh, Oops, at some level. Uh, this is a man uh, of presidential caliber. And he did arrive at the presidency on his own. Uh, I was around for that. I actually witnessed it. I was, uh, Julie and I were engaged in the uh, great adventure of 1968. Uh, that was something that I did not expect to happen. Uh, when I got to know Julie in the fall of 1966, we were in college uh, nearby. Uh, this was uh, one of the most... Uh, attractive, uh, most attractive woman I'd ever known. And, uh, but there was something really compelling about her. And that was this sadness over 1960. Uh, what could have been uh, the near miss of the presidency. I think that my family thought of that uh, very much in 66 and 67. I found myself by the end of 1967, uh, reporting to my grandfather, uh, uh, in a sort of contradictory way, I'm saying, uh, Granddad, well, I know he can't win, of course. Uh, but boy, I don't know how he's going to lose. I mean, you ought to see the crowds and, you know, uh, this kind of thing. It's a, they stood in a subordinate superior relationship, but they were actually fated uh, to be in some way uh, at parity. And I think that, that that's the relationship in a nutshell. Nixon arrived there in 68, I mean, on his own. Uh, this is, uh, he got there the old-fashioned way, 
uh, we were confronted with a terrible situation, which we all remember, the Vietnam War in 1968. There was, a, there was a compelling need to redeem that war in one way or another, ended on a basis that Americans could accept, but that would also potentially uh, position the United States for a favorable po post-war uh, uh, position. And that is something Nixon devoted a great deal of attention to, and he came into office with uh, counterintuitive but brilliant insights that actually moved the country uh, in a positive direction despite all of that, uh, uh, despite all of the agony. Uh, he saw the possibilities for an opening to China. He saw the possibilities for meddling in the communist world and splitting the communist world against itself, even though we are uh, uh, in trouble in Vietnam. He saw that. And that's what we ask of presidents to identify the problem and to organize uh, effective action to uh, address problems. Uh, that's what presidents are there for. And uh, uh, so he's presidential in every way. This is not somebody who just simply succeeds into the office. He's somebody who had a, he had a great sense of why he was there, as did granddad. Uh, I think most presidents do. I'm a presidentialist in the sense that I really admire people who uh, take that role on. In fact, Talmadge, when we were together in uh, Texas, uh, January seems pre-COVID, it seems like a uh, long time ago, I had a wonderful experience, and that was an opportunity to sit down with President George W. Bush uh, and Laura, uh, and uh, spent, we had a, a fair amount in common. I knew his father well as a congressman uh, during the Nixon years, and uh, we had a wonderful uh, conversation. And I kept thinking to myself, I admire what this person has done intensely because uh, he prepared himself uh, for a moment in history. I don't think uh, any president has handled a situation better than George W. Bush did on 9-11. Uh, he rose to the occasion. That's why we put presidents there. I felt uh, great admiration. In fact, walking out the door, I said uh, to his chief of staff, I said, Glad to have had that hour. You know, uh, we've missed each other several times over the years, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to tell him how much I really appreciated and uh, admired his presidency. So I would say, Talmadge, what we're talking about here are presidential personalities, and I think that they interact in, a, in an interesting way. I think that what's expected in politics is loyalty, uh, generally loyalty upward. Uh, and... The presidential personality doesn't quite work that way. Uh, and so I think they got along. Uh, they got along remarkably well, despite their official relationship. I would say despite their official relationship. Uh, and they got a, a, along well uh, eerily that I find out uh, many years later, I think, because they, they actually had a pedigree in common. They had, they had a remarkable uh, Number of coincidences, I would say. Nixons arrive in Pennsylvania at the same time the Eisenhowers do. The Nixons go across the country on I-70. The Eisenhower, the Eisenhower's I-70. Nixons keep going to California. The Eisenhower's stop in Kansas. Uh, but there's um, uh, there's a remarkable similarity in background. Very different personalities are seen to be, uh, but uh, uh, but they certainly have that in common, and that is. Uh, uh, why they're remarkable people and why we're here talking about them. Well, uh, David, for my final question, Richard Nixon was your father-in-law for over a quarter of a century from your 
December 1968 wedding until his death in April 1994. So what's your favorite memory of Richard Nixon as your father-in-law? Boy, I don't know. Talmadge, I'll tell one that I think that that may excite you as a eminent uh, baseball historian. I think probably sitting in chairs, in fact, in the next room, uh, I'm in my living room. By the way, behind me, uh, you can see on the wall, this is an Eisenhower painting. That's one of my grandfather's uh, early paintings. In fact, that's of Versailles, Paris, uh, the summer that uh, he boarded that NATO airplane. But at any rate, Nixon was in the playroom. We're watching game six of the 1986 World Series, and you know the rest oh my of it. Gosh. Mets, Red Sox, yeah, we Buckner. Been watching, uh, we've been following the Mets together. I've seen, I've seen him every weekend uh, all summer. We've been, we fell in on the New York Mets. We were big, big on that. And uh, they're, they're going down. Mookie Wilson hits that ground ball to first base that goes through the wickets, and we both just leapt out of the chair. I leapt out of the chair. We fell over on the floor. I'll just never forget that. Uh, I had a lot of wonderful times with him. I uh, knew him in a different way than I uh, knew my grandfather. I mean, I'm a, uh, I knew him at an older age. Uh, in fact, I would say that um, many of the insights I took to the Eisenhower period uh, were really uh, uh, things that I uh, observed or uh, was sort of let in on uh, through Richard Nixon. These were tumultuous times. I did learn a lesson uh, about leadership uh, through Nixon that I've applied to Eisenhower with great success. And I think that it it explains, uh, it's a very important element of leadership, and that is mission, the mission aspect of it. Presidents are officials uh, by and large, but they are presidents when they are carrying the nation forward on a great mission. And generally, uh, the success of a presidency depends upon understanding uh, the nature of the mission you face uh, and uh, understanding what is required. This is Eisenhower carrying forward in peace uh, as president uh, understood the necessity, I believe, for for consolidating the post-war era and launching uh, a kind of general effort to reconcile uh, East and West, believing that that was possible. That was the option that he offered in 1952, and that was um, did not succeed entirely in his presidency, but the byproducts of that, what America experienced in this period, uh, the capital we accumulated, uh, the example we set for future presidents uh, in the confrontations at Suez and Berlin and elsewhere were, were priceless. Uh, and um, Nixon running in 1968, um, uh, offering to end the war in Vietnam and win the peace. Uh, sure didn't feel like we'd won anything uh, in 1974 and 75, but America did win the peace. Uh, and uh, and that was uh, uh, in, uh, we navigated probably our most uh, intricate uh, passage uh, in the Nixon presidency. And while he did not have the satisfaction of uh uh, feeling that he had succeeded wholly, uh, we came out of the war in the 70s and early 80s in a better place uh, than we were in the late 60s and eventually on the verge of a great triumph. And so this is, uh, we understand what a leader is, 
Uh, we can describe the various characteristics of it. Uh, if these characteristics are building blocks, we can build uh, we can build a structure. But what pulls it together, what makes it a building, uh, is mission and dedicating yourself uh, to uh, a genuine to a vital purpose uh, in public life. And I think that's what both of them. Certainly learned that in the Nixon years, I applied to the Eisenhower years, I felt successfully that's exactly the way I analyzed the uh, European theater in Eisenhower War. And uh, that's why uh, Talmadge, looking back on it, I have to say, I've been very fortunate in my life. I've never had a moment where I haven't said I was very fortunate to have uh, known those people uh, and to have um, had these storehouse or the, the treasure of... Um, association with them well we feel especially uh, blessed and treasured to to get uh, all of your wonderful insights and stories uh that uh, i think it's going to be a fantastic program going to be watched by thousands of women in the dallas area and uh and i think we've all learned a lot so david thank you so much and uh give your lovely wife julie thank friends. you and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you again and uh, you keep the books rolling, and uh, you're doing a lot of history stuff. And I'm going to get you on The Whole Truth, which is uh, PBS. We're in about 70% uh, of American homes now. And uh, when Annenberg School reopens, uh, we want you. Uh, when it reopens, we're all uh, unfortunately shut down right now. We're getting used to this, this uh, Zoom stuff. But um, uh, there will be brighter days ahead. And when that is, I'm looking forward to seeing you again, my friend. Okay, David. Thank you so much. David Eisenhower has deep and meaningful insights into his famous family that puts their legacies into a more favorable position. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud, and also on my website, talmadgeboston.com. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.